And if you were here last week, you know, <clears throat> am I doing something funny with the microphone this morning? Does it sound a little different? Yeah. It does, doesn't it? A little bit. Well, you know what? We have the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour, tower of power, Skip Taylor running sound today. I promise you it will be resolved very, very quickly and very, very well. Skip, you're the man. I don't know what I did, brother. My fault. My B. Anyway, last week was a phenomenal celebration, and in case you weren't here or have just, you know, walked in the door for the first time, we celebrated 25 years of God's goodness. And when you talk about the church and all of the ways that God describes the church throughout the Bible, I think the most appropriate, the, the clearest example that we have from our human relationships is family. It, the church is not, um, it's not a charity, it's not a nonprofit, it's not a school, it's not a government, it's not a neighborhood. It is clearly a family. Now, what do I mean when we say the word family? That's a loaded question, isn't it? How you describe or define family, how I describe or define family, largely is going to depend on our own personal experience with family. Years ago, Julie and I were going to the funeral of a close family friend. We were traveling with him out to another part of the state. And on the way to this funeral, our friend it was the funeral for his father, and he was explaining to us kind of the roster of the family that we would be meeting at the funeral and the reception and everything, and he was kind of giving us a little bit of rundown. He was talking about, you know, the, the black sheep of the family, the cousin that everybody loves, but nobody ever really knows where he is. He told us about the aunt and uncle who got divorced, but they're still on very good terms. There was the, the uncle who was in recovery and doing great, and everybody celebrated. There was the other cousin who was not in recovery, but they hoped one day would get into recovery. And he kind of just kept going on and on about his particular family. And as he kind of got to the end of the roster, he just looked out the window for a second. He goes, you know, one thing I've noticed over the years, <laughs> everybody has family. When he said that, it hit me as maybe one of the truest statements I've ever heard. As a matter of fact, turn to your neighbor and tell him with a smile on your face, Everybody has family. Now, you and I both know what he was really saying was everybody has family issues. You've got them. I've got them. All God's children have family issues. I, I've said for years, I, I don't like the term dysfunctional family because I think it's misleading. I think the term dysfunctional family implies that somewhere there's a functional family. And we've all got varying degrees of dysfunction to deal with. And yet, for all of these degrees of dysfunction, for all of the challenges associated with it, I would suggest to you that it is the family that has the greatest relational impact in any of our lives. As a matter of fact, that's why we're starting this series today called Family Style, because it's not just the title of a series, it's actually the design and the desire of God that the family would be the primary, not the only, but the family would be the primary carrier, the ultimate vehicle of his grace and truth from generation 
to generation. What we just got to witness in baptism. You saw children, you saw grown-ups, men and women representing, demonstrating their faith in Christ because someone had shared that with them. And what's interesting is when it happens in different people's lives, largely, not only, but largely is determined by their families of origin. I've got family, you've got family, and that's why this series is for everybody. You may not be married with 2.4 kids of your own, but you've got a family that you come from. As a matter of fact, I believe if you're not married, if you are a student or a single adult, this series is especially important for you. I want you to think about this. Most of you will get married at some point. Statistically, 90% plus of us get married at some point. We're, we're getting married a little later, but we still get married. For the vast majority of you who have yet to be married but will be married, you probably are going to marry someone you date. I'm just putting it out there. That's unless I'm successful in bringing back arranged marriages, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> Barring that, you're going to marry someone that you date. The single greatest relational decision on a human level that you will ever make, you are already establishing patterns. You are building behaviors that will set the tone for how you family one day. Now, some of you may be thinking, Mac, you know, I understand your, your cute little thing about dysfunctional families. You don't understand the family I came from. I, well, I'm not talking about a little bit of dysfunction. I grew up in dysfunction junction, and that may be you. But because of Jesus Christ, you are not condemned to repeat the rituals of your family. You have the opportunity. The Bible says in Christ, all things are made new. And what we are today, what we're talking about is not just family values. We're actually talking about family value. We're talking about the value of the family, of the role that you play, the role that I play in adding value, in creating value, in allowing God to do what only God can do in and through our families. Now, this entire sermon series is based on one brief passage of Scripture. It's found in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 24, we find the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, about to settle in to the promised land. Just by way of background, the promised land was part of God's covenant with Abram, who became Abraham, over 500 years prior to this moment that we're going to study today. This is the promised land that Israel has been fighting for, occupying for the last generation under the leadership of Joshua. But Joshua is coming to the end of his life. The Bible says that Joshua reached the age of 110. I love that. That means that I am literally middle-aged standing here before you today. But here Joshua is at the end of his life, and he's about to pass the baton. He's about to pass the torch to the next generation of Israel. And I want you to look at how he frames their moment in history, this, this cultural, iconic moment 
where they find themselves. Look at what he says in Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15. He says the following. So, fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. This to me is one of the most fascinating statements in the entirety of Scripture. From Genesis to Maps, what he is saying here frames things not only personally and at a family level, but did you see how he also ties it to a cultural and a historical moment? You see, Joshua understood. He had seen across generations how individual choices made within family units bear out culturally, how they bear out historically. I think this is one of the greatest learnings that we can take from this whole series. What you do in your home does not stay in your home. What you do in your home, how you treat the people closest to you in your family, literally affects culture and history. It, it is a fascinating dynamic that I think we lose sight of. So many times we think, how many, how many times have you walked in the door of your home, whether it's an apartment or a house or wherever it might be, and you're just like, it is so peopley out there. You know what I'm talking about? You just, you're just like, man, now I can just let loose. I don't have to watch every word that I say. If I think it, I can say it. How many of us have ever done that this week? Okay, thank you very much for raising your hand. I've done that. There, there are times when I've had meetings here at the church. I've had meetings with staff and then counseling appointments. And then I've had phone calls with board members and, and days like this where it just goes. And part of the thing that I, one of the things that I love about my job, my calling, is that it is never the same day twice. But it is possible for some days to be a little bit draining. Just keeping it real. I'm just telling you. And there have been times when I've gotten home and I have not been the ray of sunshine to Julie that I should have been. I have not walked in the door and thought, how can I serve her? It happened one time about 20 years ago. I'll never forget it. But what we do in our families really, really matters. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm a student. I, I'm, man, my parents tell me where to go. I, I can't drive myself. Or if I drive myself, then they're always checking on my location. Congratulations, you have good parents. <laughs> but you play a massive role in the health and welfare of your family. You have a 
job to do. You have a role to play in your family. Students, that is so important. You know, one of the things that I've noticed over time in different situations that I've been in, whether I was on a, a sports team or in an organization in school or part of a, a campus leadership team in my kids' elementary school, whenever you help someone who is in authority over you, you help yourself. You ever notice that? It, whenever you help someone who is in authority, years ago when our kids were in elementary school, the school called me and asked me to be on the campus leadership team of parents. I think there were about 15 other parents and a few teachers that rotated through every year. And I remember thinking, campus leadership, Forest Trail Elementary School, the yoke of leadership weighs heavy. You laugh. These teachers talk. But I remember, and it was funny because when they invited me to be on the team, they, they knew that I was the pastor of a church, and, and they said, now, we're not asking you to pray at any of our meetings. I said, that, okay. I usually only do that on Sunday anyway. Now, that's not true, by the way. If you're new, I'm joking. But I remember going to Mr. McCaslin, the principal of the elementary school, and I said, Mr. McCaslin, how can I help you in this role? You would have thought I had just handed him the keys to a Mercedes-Benz G-Wagon. When I said, how can I help you? Do you know how many principals get emails saying, how can I help? I know what it's like to be responsible. I know what it's like to be in a leadership position. I wanted to help him out. Students. Help yourself by helping your parents. Somebody help me preach. <laughs> Students, help yourself by helping your parents. They're not perfect, but God has put them in that position in your life because he loves you. And he wants to use them to grow you up to be the man, to be the woman he created you to be. So the more you help your parents, the more you will help yourself. This, this moment here in Joshua is critical. Look at what he says. I want to pull that verse back up if you would. He says, put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. Joshua saying, you don't have to to go the same direction your parents went. You, you don't have to adopt the same habits. As a matter of fact, those earlier generations, they worshiped worthless idols, inanimate, undynamic, unengaged idols. You serve the Lord alone. You connect with God in a personal, in a real, in a tangible way. You don't have to repeat the cycle. Serve the Lord alone. It, it was not only a historical calling, calling them out from the sins of their fathers, but it was a cultural calling. He said, now don't, don't look to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. The Amorites and the Canaanites and all of the ites 
of the Old Testament, the promised land prior to Israel getting there was known for paganism and debauchery. And Israel supplanted that. Israel replaced that. Israel usurped that demonic order to bring worship of God into the promised land. And Joshua's telling him, don't go back to the idols of your fathers. Don't go back to the idols of the people you just replaced in the promised land. It is both historical and cultural, this calling. And so when we talk about the value of family, he's, he's speaking to it in a broad historical, cultural context, but then, man, he brings it to a, just a laser point focus. He says, you choose today whom you will serve. You choose today. But as for me and my household, as for me and my family, we're going to worship the one true God. This is, this is a hill that we will die on. How desperately we need moms and dads who will stand up and say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, period, hard stop. That is what God is calling us to. And the implications don't stop at the front door of our houses. It radiates out culturally, historically. It changes things. But you, you've got you've to be desirous of that change. I've noticed something over the years. First of all, our culture and our world is absolutely, irrefutably anti-family. That's not even a question. But I would encourage you to not focus on that because here's what I've noticed. Families that flourish and thrive rather than just function and survive, families that flourish and thrive are not focused on a fight with culture. Now, they fight to be sure. They fight for the things that matter. They fight for, for the family. But they are focused instead on a vision of what they're aiming toward, not what they're afraid of. Don't, don't focus on what you don't want. You don't have to repeat the sins of the past, but don't just run away from those things. You've got to be running toward a God-given vision. Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But happy is he that keepeth the law. You'll notice from the keepeth, that's the King James Version. And that translation into the English language from the original Hebrew is accurate and was especially accurate in 1611 when the King James Bible was published. More recent modern translations, I think, help us understand more of what is behind that in the original Hebrew. It's not just where there is no vision, the people perish. It is where there is no revelation from God, then the people cast off restraint. The people run wild. And you run wild long enough, you'll die. That, that's, just, that's just a fact. So where there is no vision, the family perishes. Don't just worry about what you're afraid of. Focus on a vision of what you want to do, what God is calling you to. That's what Joshua is calling Israel here to in Joshua 24. What are you about? What are you in favor of? What are you for? Now, along the way, we'll, we'll talk about the things we're not in favor of. 
I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter. I'm not saying doctrine doesn't matter. But I'm saying let's focus on what we are for. Let's focus our fight on what we are for. I, I know in, in, in our marriage, I am for Julie being in a good mood. I, I am. The, the better a mood Julie is in, the better everything works in our household. Anybody else like that? I'm just curious. Okay. Well, obviously, I don't want Julie to get mad at me. I don't want Julie to, to be in a bad mood. But if I'm just trying to keep her out of a bad mood, that's not aiming high enough. I want to do the things that contribute to a good mood. Years ago, I went through a motorcycle phase. I don't know if some of you may remember that. I had a, I had a motorcycle for a while. And I remember when I was getting my motorcycle license, wow, 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 I remember the class taught me something very, very important. They said, the wheel goes where your eyes go. The wheel goes where your eyes go. So when you're riding a motorcycle, you know, cruising down the road at 54 miles an hour, if there's an obstacle in the road, you don't want to bump that. If you're in your car, your pickup or something, you're like, man, I'll run over that. If you're on a motorcycle, not so much. So when you try to avoid something, if you look at it, invariably the front wheel will go right over that thing you're trying to avoid. You have to look where you want to go in order to miss where you don't want to go. This is the same principle for our families. Focus your fight on the vision. What is it that you want? What are you after? And so I want to challenge you as, as a family, but also if a single adult for your life, what is your vision? What are you about in this life? You, you have a vision. It's either by design or by default. It's either intentional or incidental. I would encourage you to be very, very intentional about your vision. Julie and I, years ago, prayed through this process and worked through this, and we, we, we talked a lot about what do we want our kids to leave home with? What do we want our family to be about? We, we could list all of the things that are working against the family, that work against marriage and all those things, but, but what are we about? And, and we landed on three things. We said we, we want to... We want the Richard household, and by the way, before I tell you these things, they have nothing to do with what we get to do in our calling as leaders of a church. That's not what this is about. This is about just our household. And we said, if our kids leave home with these three things, we're going to call that a win. If our kids have built into their lives, they love God, they love his house, and they love his ways, we're going to call that a win. Love God, love his house, and love the ways. Love God, Jesus said that's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. That's, that's everything you've got. So love God. Number two, love his house, the church. The church is the only organization that will follow your children from cradle to grave. The church is the only organization that Jesus Christ gave himself up for. The church is the only group that will be there no matter what, no matter when you come or go. The church. We wanted Emily and Joe to, to develop the muscle memory to be a part of the church. There's some, there's some great parachurch ministries and organizations, but they ain't the church. 
The church is the called out body of Christ. So love God, love his house, and love his ways. We wanted our kids to learn that what God says biblically just works better. So, so love God's ways. There, there are going to be things you're going to read in the Bible that are going to be hard to understand, hard to put into practice. Just understand as a baseline presupposition, God has put it there because he loves you and he's good. Everything else is a detail. Everything else, let's work from that presupposition, that understanding. That, that's the vision statement in our home. So the, our vision becomes true north. That, that's what we're after in our family. If you don't have a family vision statement, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you, pastor you, cajole you, exhort you. Create, pray through a family vision statement. The value of your family is shaped by the vision and values of your family. So crystallize it. Put it down and, and be able to tell people, tell your kids, this is what we're after. This is what we're all about. You know, what Joshua said was revolutionary at the time. It's revolutionary in the time in which we live. That, that what happens in the family affects the world. Robert Sampson is a Harvard sociologist. And Harvard, just for those of you scoring at home, Harvard is not in the business currently of reinforcing biblical values. That's not, that's not why they get up in the morning. But this Harvard sociologist said that two-parent homes are better for culture, for neighborhoods, just the physical safety of where people live. He writes this, family structure, two-parent homes, is one of the strongest if not the strongest predictor of variations in urban violence across cities in the United States. That's a powerful statement. Now, let me quickly say this. You do not, you do not have to have a two-parent home with 2.4 kids and a white picket fence to have a healthy, God-honoring home. You do, that is not necessary. That is Far and away, God's ideal, that is far and away God's design and God's desire for one man, one woman, one life to rear children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That doesn't happen all the time. Your pastor is the product of a single-parent household. I saw how God fills in the gaps created by divorce with a mom who was faithful to God and kept us tethered to the church. How the church rallied around our family and filled in those gaps that were created when my dad left. I've seen it. But make no mistake about it. It created gaps. It, it, it created challenges that we had to navigate. There, there, was, there was some baggage that we couldn't carry on that had to be checked in therapy, if you know what I'm talking about. So I know what I'm talking about firsthand. It is possible for God to fill in those gaps. But how much better to never create the gap? How much better to aim for the vision that God has for the home, for the family, to be everything he created it to be and has called it to be? 
And this becomes a function of our values. The values that you live by, the values that you live out. And there's, there's actually embedded in Joshua's words here, there is in fact a roadmap for how we get there. It's one thing to have a vision statement. It's another thing to articulate values. Number one, articulate your family values. Say what they are. Write them down. Have a conversation about them. Depending on where you are in your relationship as husband and wife, depending on where you are as a single mom, maybe you have a conversation with someone else. But you articulate your family values. The first thing that Joshua said is fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. That's a value. That's a value. So when we talk about articulating family values, just, just very quickly, list characteristics that are important to you. List characteristics that are important to you. And as an aside, I have to say this. I am deeply indebted to Fearless Mom and my wife, Julie, for a lot of the information that I'm sharing with you today. If you've been in Fearless Mom, you've heard some of this before. If you would just nod knowingly and be impressed all over again. There you go. When you articulate your family values, list characteristics that are important to you. Meaningful moments in your life, people that you admire, why do you admire them? When are you at your best? What values are you living out when you're at your best? How do you make difficult decisions? Then list five to ten top core values for your family. List these things, but then rank them. Five or ten top core values for your family. And then narrow these down to three to five. If you have 20 core values, you don't have any values. Three to five, these are the non-negotiables. These are the hills that we will die on. Julie and I were talking about this this week as I was preparing to preach. And she said, you know, we've got a lot of values besides our top four, like hospitality. We, we like hospitality. We like having people in our home. We like feeding people. We like food. We like meal. That's, that's, that's a value. But it's not top four. We thought the top four things really comes down to we want our kids to understand authority, the authority of God through parents. We want our kids to understand responsibility and have a work ethic. We, we didn't call their teachers when they got sideways with them. You're being unfair. Um, so we, we were authority, responsibility, gratitude. Man, we want our kids to be, to be able to express gratitude. Even, even at a restaurant, when, when a server would bring something or when Chick-fil-A would hand them fries more often than not, say thank you in a way that they could hear you say it. Gratitude. And then number four was honesty. Just relentless honesty. There, there's no, no room for shading the truth. We're not going to play word games and daddy didn't ask the right question, so you're off the hook for lying. No, if you let me walk away with an impression that you know not to be true, you're grounded for life. That's dishonest. Authority, responsibility, gratitude, honesty, A-R-G-H, or as we like to call it, pirate parenting, arg. That's how it worked in our household. 
Those are the things that still drive our marriage, even though our kids are out of our household and buying their own food. Somebody, again, responsibility, core value, they're living it out. But articulate those values. Say what they are. But second of all, and as important, if not more important, demonstrate your values. It's one thing to articulate them, but you got to back them up. We have to demonstrate those values. We have to demonstrate those values. What our children leave home with is significantly more caught than taught. There is teaching that has to happen if you're a parent. No doubt. Listen, if you teach your kids how to throw a curveball, that's awesome. That's great. But they don't know honesty. If you teach your kids commitment to team sports, that's great. We, we, we knew early on both of our kids needed team sports for very different reasons. That, that's a whole other sermon, but that's great. They're committed to team sports, but they're not committed to the bride of Christ, the church? What? What are we doing? If we, we teach our kids that doing their best and, and working hard matters, but we don't teach them that we love them unconditionally, that no matter what the grade is or the score might be, we're not going anywhere. What, what have we done? You know, when Joshua said to leave the idols of your forefathers, I started thinking, what are, what are our idols? We, we, we've all got them. Human beings are prone towards idolatry. We're prone to major on minors. We're pro, we're, we, we have that, that innate bent in us. Materialism, yeah. Um, our, our culture is sex-obsessed. This is what's funny about our culture, sexually. Our culture is experiencing a psychotic break sexually. It is the center of the universe and the most important determining factor of who you are, and it's no big deal, all at the same time. That's, that is literally the definition of psychotic. It doesn't make sense, and yet that's where we are. Um, so, what are our idols? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I think the number one idol in the world that you and I walk around in is our kids' success. The number one idol. If you ask any parent worth their salt, they would tell you, we want to raise happy, healthy kids. And, and I think it comes from a really good place. I do. But I think it is entirely misguided. 
if my children's success and happiness or self-esteem is the center of my universe, I'm putting too much weight on my kids' shoulders. They're not created to bear that kind of burden. My job as a dad is to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition, the teaching of the Lord. The home is a seminary. The home is where we begin to introduce our kids to who God is. We introduce them to the idea that everything else will disappoint and let them down at some level, even the good stuff in life, if we're not worshiping God. Look back at Joshua 24, 15. He said, would you prefer the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? No, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Family style. Family style. Every single one of us has a role to play. I want to ask you if you will bow your heads for just a moment. It's a lot to process, I know. And, and there, there is a part of it that's heavy. There's a part of it that's, that's actually kind of funny if you think about it. Sometimes funny in a laugh to keep from crying kind of way. But that's, a, you can, that's okay, it's funny. If you're here today and you have never chosen to serve the Lord, to follow Christ, we want to invite you to do it right now. To pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning in relationship with Him. If you're here in the room, if you're online, wherever you may be, if that's you, then you pray. Silently just communicate from your heart to God something like this. Jesus, I need you. I need you and I confess my sin to you. I'm not holding anything back. I confess it to you. I surrender it to you. in order to receive your grace. Your grace that forgives, your grace that empowers me to repent and to follow you. And so I commit my life to you right now, in this moment, beginning a relationship with you. And I pray this prayer in your name. If that was your prayer, as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, you know, we bow our heads just as a, as a sign of reverence, a posture of humility. But if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? 
just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment as a statement physically of the commitment you just made spiritually and know that as a church we honor that commitment we celebrate that with you and our family tradition is here we ask you if you will put your hands down as we put our hands together and tell you welcome home welcome home